Now, maybe more than one of you are asking the question, what in the world does Genesis chapter 3 have to do with Christmas? Like, why are we reading this text at Christmas? Let me tell you a story. It was 2008 or 2009, I don't remember exactly which year it was, but it was before I was a pastor and I had come home early from work, it was Christmas Eve, and that night we were getting ready for friends and guests to come over because Vicki was making her killer lobster stew. Every Christmas Eve, that's what we have, lobster stew, she's from Maine, lobster's a big deal, we always have it and everybody looks forward to it. So I come home, we get the kids situated and settled, I'm hanging out with them, and she has to go out to get some last-minute items. It was snowing, and so we figured that with the snow and with it being Christmas Eve, it was going to be a little while. A little while turned into a long while, and then a longer while, and then I got worried and anxious and started to call her, and she was not picking up her phone. Finally, the call came back, and it was Vicky in tears, crying, sobbing on the phone. I don't like those phone calls. She had just been in a car accident where the driver's side door was impaled, and she was crying hysterically, having just experienced the impact. At that moment, I did not care about the state of the vehicle. I did not care that our Christmas Eve plans were obviously being altered. I just wanted to hear two words. When the bad news was coming to me, I just wanted to hear some good news. I wanted to hear two words. I'm okay. I'm okay. See, at the moment that bad news was coming to me, I wanted the the relief and the, the peace of some good news. That's what Genesis 3 is about. At the moment when bad news came into the world, God was there proclaiming good news. This is the first announcement of good news that Christ the Savior is born today. That's where that good news. Luke chapter 3, we all know the Christmas story. The shepherds watching their fields by night. And the angel appears, and the glory of the Lord appears, and he says to them, fear not, behold, I bring you what? Good news of great joy. You see, at that time, just like today, the world was waiting for good news. Friends, the Christmas story and the good news of Christ the Lord being born today begins right here in Genesis chapter 3. This is the first announcement of good news. At the moment when bad news came into the world, God was there proclaiming good news. Now, I love Christmas time. I love the music. I love the food. I love the decorated house. I hate decorating the house. I'm not your guy when it comes to hanging the lights. That's always been Vicky's deal. I'm happy to like sit in a nicely decorated house and look at the lights. I like to enjoy the fruits of her labor, but I don't like the decorating part. I even like, to be honest, I like some of the hustle and bustle, at least just a little bit. I like being out and shopping, and people are generally speaking. I don't get the angry shoppers that are trying to run me over, but generally speaking, I like being a little bit in the hustle and bustle. But of all that 
takes place during this time. Of all the things that I enjoy, the, the place that I enjoy it the most when I, when I really slow down enough to think about it is when I realize all of these blessings that we experience come to us. The good things that we enjoy this time of year and throughout the year, those all come to us through the good news that God and man are reconciled. Any good thing that we experience in our lives, any joy that you have, any happiness that we experience comes to us as followers of Christ through the good news that through Christ, God and man are reconciled. He's not at enmity with us anymore. God's curse is not upon those who are in Jesus Christ. And so the peace of God that I enjoy and the the happiness that I enjoy through material things comes to me through the good news of Christ. And sometimes... The good news is accentuated by bad news. Good news is seen to be good news when it's contrasted by or accentuated by bad news, which is what we experience here in Genesis chapter 3. We see some bad news. There's bad news in the world. Satan and sin and hostility and temptation and giving in to temptation Friends, those things are still very much a part of our world today. We're aware of them. All is not well. The bad news is that these things are still a part of our common experience. We're not all coming in here happy this morning. There's still bad news in the world. In order to truly rejoice in and experience the power of the good news, we first have to consider some bad news. Here we find that we have a very crafty, a very subtle, a very strategic enemy. The bad news is he's still active with the same strategies in our lives today. There's no explicit mention of Satan in this text, but when we start to put our Bibles together, we know that that's exactly who's spoken of here. Look at verse 1. Did God actually say? Now we, if you're like me, like to read like a sinister, evil, raspy voice there. Did God actually say? That's not what's happening here. That's not how Satan ever comes to you and I. This is a feigned expression of surprise and shock. It's a genuine expression, feigned, false. It's a genuine expression of shock. Like, <gasps> did, did God actually say this? Like, how, how could he? How could God love you and yet impose such limitation upon you? We never experienced that though, Right? How could God love you and withhold from you? How could he impose such limitations upon you? Maybe you felt lonely recently. And you're asking the Lord for companionship. You're asking the Lord for friendship. You're asking the Lord for maybe restoration in your life, in your family. And that feeling of loneliness just confuses you. And in those moments, you're saying, God, what's up with this? This is not a bad thing that I'm asking for. A spouse or 
relational harmony or joy or peace through friendship and experience of community. These things are not wrong, but you seem to be withholding them from me. How could you be loving and yet withhold something so precious to me, something that's good? We get decades into our marriage or our careers or raising our children, and we begin to have questions like, is this really all there is? Is she really all there is? Is he all there is? Have I made some mistake? Has God made some mistake? Has he led me to places and to experiences and and issues in my life? How could he have done this? How could he love me and yet withhold good things from me. Some of us get to the point of retirement and realize that in the time when we're supposed to be looking forward and and experiencing the most out of life, we've waited all our lives to get here, and we find that actually in those moments, I'm more anxious now than I ever have been before. Gripping fears arrest me, and I wonder, will I really be able to make it? Do we really have enough? Am I going to be able to survive? And at times, it can feel like God has left you completely alone. Friends, you can be sure that in those moments, there is a satanic, strategic effort to get you to doubt and to twist the character of God. You can be sure in those moments that there's a satanic effort to get you to sow seeds of doubt in your mind to view God in a way that is other than He truly is. That's bad news. The same tactics that Satan was using in in the garden are the same tactics he uses in every one of our lives. How could God love you and allow you to go through this? How could God really care and withhold something that seems to be so good? How could God bring you to this point and then leave you there all by yourself? It's subtle. It's strategic. But it's effective. He comes with subtlety and He also comes with full-on lies. In verse 4, He moves from a subtle exaggeration. How could God do this? How Did he really say not any tree and the fruit you can't eat? He moves from a subtle exaggeration to a full-on lie. After Eve engages him with dialogue, he says, you will not surely die. There's no real damaging consequences to sin. In fact, there's benefits to sin. By disobeying God, you'll actually benefit. You'll be like God. See, Satan's tactic is always to minimize sin and glamorize it on the front end and then maximize it on the back end. So he comes to us tempting us with the the benefits of and minimize. It's not that bad. God will forgive you. And then we give in to temptation and then it's God will never forgive you. He claims to know the mind of God by saying that God is withholding something out of jealousy. God knows you'll be like Him. 
He's arrogantly presuming and exclaiming that he has knowledge of the mind of God. He does not. God selfishly wants to be the only one with such wisdom and power and knowledge. Friends, the bad news is that Satan is still selling lies about God and you and I are still believing them. That's bad news. Now notice what lures Eve and then Adam into sin. It's it's their desire. Their desire for good things. So often in our lives, sin is a good desire pointed in a bad direction. That's what sin is. So often it's a good desire pointed in a bad direction. Eve's desire for food is good. Eve's desire for pleasure is good. Eve's desire for wisdom is good. But when those desires are pointed in the wrong direction, when they're pointed outside of the boundaries of what God has determined to be good for us, we take good desires and point them in a bad direction. We can all relate to this. We all want to be happy. Sex and food and drink and acceptance with friends and respect and security and success, all of those things, all of those desires are good desires. But whenever we point those desires in, in, in bad directions, namely outside of the confounds of what God has said that these are good, walk in these ways, whenever we point those desires outside of the boundaries of what God has determined, we take good desires and point them in a bad direction. And so a great question to ask when we're being tempted is, what is it that I really want? What do I want? What do I really believe that is going to make me happy? And how am I stepping outside of the bounds of what God has said is good to take that further? Because see, that's what sin also does. At its core is an attempt to displace God from being the one who makes the decisions and to insert ourselves there. Sin is an action of pride where we flip from creator to creature this way. God is creator, we are creature. Sin says, no, I'll be the one to call the shots. I know what's going to truly make me happy, and so I want to be the one in charge. The creator becomes below me, and I determine what's good. My will is primary, his will is secondary. That's why sin is so wicked. That's what is happening in Genesis 3, and it's what happens in our lives as well. God's will becomes secondary, my will becomes primary. As one commentator said, deification, the desire to be like God, to be God ourselves, deification is a fantasy difficult to repress and a temptation hard to reject. Just like Satan, just like Eve, just like Adam, we want to be like God. It's bad news. We still feel the enemy bruising our heels. Do you still feel the nip in your lives? Do you still feel the consequences of the enemy's sting? Charles Baudelaire, you don't know the name, I didn't either, but what he said, we do know. He was a French poet who said, the devil's best trick is to persuade you that he does not exist. I think another one of his tricks is to persuade us that he's somehow less aggressive in this world today. We see him, 
like the Miami Dolphins, who have one of the worst records in the season in the NFL, but who don't back down. They, like, they actually come out to play. And I know for you Eagles fans, that's a little too soon. Satan's not like that. Satan is gunning for your and my demise with all he's got. He's an arrogant, proud enemy who won't back down. He'll fight to the death. And he's coming to destroy us again and again and again. That's the bad news that we have to confront. But there's good news. At the moment when bad news comes into our lives, the gospel always proclaims good news. The gospel is always good news. Always. But sometimes we don't see it as good news until it's contrasted by the bad news. At the moment, I know that we come in here and the effects of the fall are being experienced in our lives. Sin and temptation and death and disease and sickness and confusion and marital trials and, and family trials and kids. I know all that. You know all that. At the moment when bad news comes into our life, God is there proclaiming good news. There is good news that supersedes the fall. There's good news that supersedes the curse. There's good news that our enemy is out to harm us and destroy us. Christ has come. Christmas reminds us that the head crusher has come. Look at verse 15 again. At the moment when bad news came into the world, here is God proclaiming good news. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we should acknowledge right up front that this is debatable. Not everybody believes that this is talking about Jesus. In fact, there are a large amount of scholars that say that when we import Christ here, we're being totally irresponsible and we're handling this text poorly. I'm not going to bore you with all those details, but let's just tackle two of them. First, the word translated here, bruise. In the ESV, you see it's used twice. 15b, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So if you read different translations, maybe you're reading the NIV and it says, he shall crush your head and you shall strike at his heel. So what they're saying is, hey, that's the same Hebrew word. When you import that type of language, one obvious fatal blow versus one non-fatal blow, you're importing something into the text that's not there. In the Hebrew, the word is the same. So you've got to use the same word, which is what the ESV does. The second thing that they might say is this idea of a masculine pronoun, the fact that it says he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his Heal. In the Hebrew, that is neuter. There's no, there's no gender there. No masculine or feminine gender. It's neuter. So it literally says, it and it shall bruise your head, and you, you shall bruise its heel. That's the literal translation. So what they're saying is, throughout church history, the Septuagint, the Greek version of our Old Testament, they inserted the masculine pronoun. They inserted the he because they're trying to import Christ from the New Testament into the Old. And you can't do that. 
Here's the point. At face value, what God is saying here is that at some point, some descendant of the woman is going to crush the head of the offspring of the serpent. So when, when a battle is going on, I think it's always better to hit someone in the head than in the heel. So at the end of the day, no matter how much we want to battle over the text, the issue is the same. It's still good news. It's still good news. At some point, God is going to use the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, to somehow do something bad to the seed of the serpent. That's good news. Now, when we start piecing our Bibles together, we start to see that it's unmistakable that this is talking about Jesus. Because you know as well as I do, when we're studying our Bibles, we don't just study a text in isolation. When you start to blow it up, you see there's themes and there's patterns and there's, there's issues that are raised from the whole arc of Scripture that find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so let's just do a little bit this morning. In the very next chapter, chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. Cain kills Abel. So Abel, who's a man who's seeking to please God, who's killed by a man who doesn't please God. So we learn immediately that the seed of the woman are those who are seeking to please God. Not perfectly. And the seed of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent, are those who seek to oppose God and to kill or harm His people. That's the story of the whole Old Testament. Andrew was reading it from it today. Esau is trying to persecute Jacob. Pharaoh tries to destroy Israel. God leads Israel out of Egypt and destroys and crushes the serpent's head. He destroys the armies of Egypt who are trying to pursue his people. Think of the time of the judges. The Canaanites are ruling over Israel, and God promises he's going to deliver them. And so Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, is drawn into battle and then flees from battle and finds his way to a tent of a woman named Jael. She gives him some milk. He lays down to rest. And what does she do? She drives a stake, a tent stake, through the the guy's head. Like in the Bible, bad guys get broken heads. That's all a reference to Genesis chapter 3. Fast forward to Israel as a dynasty. If you read the Psalms over and over and over again, God promises His people that through them, He's going to crush His enemies. Psalms 68, 21 and 23, God will strike the heads of His enemies. You, Israel, will strike your feet in their blood. That sounds a lot like Genesis 3 language. The royal line of David is going to crush the serpent's head. That's why the story of David and Goliath is so important. When David, the offspring of the woman, goes against Goliath, the offspring of the serpent, who's opposing and ridiculing God's people, the hostility is there. David throws a rock at Goliath's head. Then what does he do? He cuts off his head. Bad guys get bad things done to their head in the Bible. That's not by accident. God is speaking something to us. Now, what about Israel in exile? They find something in exile that's incredibly shocking. Isaiah 53 says that the crushing 
the wounding, the piercing for sin is going to fall on the servant. Somehow, the servant of the Lord is going to be wounded. He's going to be crushed for iniquity. The crushing is going to fall on him. And somehow, that's the will of the Lord to crush him. And he's going to see the the fruit, the the produce of his offspring, he's going to see prosper in this servant's hand. So somehow this crushing that God promises in the Bible is going to fall on one servant, and somehow the prosperity of the offspring is going to come through him. Church, we're not wondering anymore who that is. We know that that's Jesus. That's That's the people the Old Testament were waiting for. They were waiting for this good news. When is the head crusher going to come? We're not waiting anymore. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, listen to what he says here. I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. In Christ, we find one who speaks with total authority, specifically giving authority and power over his followers to crush the head of the serpent. That's Genesis chapter 3. John describes Jesus' ministry in this way. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. There's a summation of Jesus' ministry to crush the serpent's head. How does he do this? In this way. He is the servant from Isaiah 53. He's the one who was crushed. The curse that God promises in Genesis 3 falls on him. He's wounded. He's rejected. And the serpent, in an effort to destroy the Son of God, actually makes a way for the Son of God to save the people of God. This is incredible. The serpent's seed is crushing, is wounding, is piercing, is is inflicting upon the Son of God in an effort to destroy him, just like he tried to destroy Adam and Eve in the garden. But through that comes the pathway of salvation that God promised all along. Because in taking our sin upon himself, and taking the curse upon himself, that curse is removed from us. We're no longer at enmity with God. There's no longer an hostility between us and God anymore because it fell on Jesus. He takes the penalty for sin. He rises from the dead. And then this is what Paul says, God in so doing this, God disarms the rulers and the authorities and puts them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So when Christ raises from the dead, he makes the devil and all of the devil's minions ashamed because the very act that they were seeking to destroy him with, he completely and totally routes them by. Christian, the good news is that your battle with sin and Satan and temptation has been decisively won. I know that for some of you, it doesn't feel that way. But that's what it is. It's a feeling. Your union with Christ, your being so joined with Christ, 
Everything that's true of Jesus is now true of you and I. Christ has defeated sin and Satan and temptation. So even though the effects of that are still at work in our lives, the truth is that he has completely and totally dealt with sin, dealt with Satan, dealt with death, dealt with temptation once and for all. It no longer has the authority over us that it once had. The head crusher has come. He set us free. That's what Christmas reminds us of. That's what we find when we read Genesis all the way to Revelation. Listen to what, this is how the Bible ends. Revelation chapter 12. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's how the Bible ends. The people of God clothed in the righteousness of Christ cleansed by the blood of Jesus are crushing the head of the serpent under them through our faith in him. That's good news. Now, what else does this mean for us? Look back again at Genesis 3. Once Adam and Eve give in to temptation, they do something that we can all relate to. They try to cover themselves up, and they run away and hide from God. Now, what happens to us is that Christmas time, as much as it can be a wonderful time of year, Like I said, our problems don't go on Christmas vacation. And so we're tempted in all these ways, financial stress, relational stress. we got to see so-and-so at Christmas dinner. We're not looking forward to it. Right? The problems of our lives don't go away. And so we're tempted. And we give in to temptation. We eat too much. We drink too much. We spend too much. We look for escape in all those different ways whatever it is for any of you. And we run away from God, and then we feel this overwhelming sense of guilt and shame because we know we've done it again. We do just what Adam and Eve did. Friends, where what, what are you seeking to cover yourself up with right now? Are you hiding at all from, from God? God's questions here is not because he doesn't know the answer. God's not confused about where they are. His question is an invitation to them. Come out. Come out. You don't have to hide yourself. You don't have to cover yourself. You don't have to hide from me anymore. In the same way that God came to his people in the garden, Jesus Christ at Christmas came to you. Come out. You don't have to go into hiding anymore. You don't have to deal with the shame anymore. You don't have to try to cover up that sin anymore. I know all about it. I know exactly where you are, and I've dealt with that sin. I've dealt with the shame. I've dealt with the disgrace. I know what you're dealing with. Come out. Come out into the light and be cleansed and be forgiven and be healed. He comes to offer us help at Christmas, friends. He comes to offer us grace and forgiveness, and he comes to us again and again and again and again. 
And so when Satan slithers into your life again and again and, and he tempts you and he, he entices you and you, you give in to those things and you seek to hide and, and you seek in the shame to hide yourself and cover yourself up from God, you, you say back to him, yes, that's true. I have done it again. But Christ, the head crusher, has come and he's clothed me in his righteousness and he's covered me by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I'm coming to him. I'm not running from him. I'm coming back to him once again to receive his grace and his mercy to walk anew. And when he comes with his lies and tries to make us anxious and fearful, yes, we know that those things are true. Yes, we know in ourselves we don't have the strength to battle those temptations. But we have things like Psalm 56. When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. Jesus, help me. Help me to put my trust in you and not to give in, not to be afraid, not to be anxious. Help me. He comes to help us. When we're feeling depressed, we go to Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I can't lift my eyes for myself. Would you come? Would you help me to lift my eyes to the hills? Where does my help come? It comes from you. Jesus, help me. Come to be with me. Come near to me. I need you right now. When we're joyful, we pray Psalm 46. Thank you. I know more joy that they have when their grain and their wine abound. Jesus, you've come to give me that joy. In the face of this real temptation and struggles that we face, Jesus reminds us at his coming that he comes to help us. He's here to help us. And that's the good news of Christmas. And we have the band return. You see, at the moment when bad news came into the world, at, mo- at moments when bad news comes into our lives, God and the gospel are there proclaiming good news. Satan comes to kill and destroy. But Jesus comes to give life and to heal. Satan comes to us proud and arrogant. Jesus comes to us humble and gentle. Satan comes to hurt. Jesus comes to help. Keller says that Jesus doesn't just bring the good news. Jesus is the good news. And so if we get Christ at Christmas, we get good news. He is the good news. He's the one that's dealt with our great enemy. He's dealt with our sin. He's even overcome death on our behalf. And so in this season, we remember him. We remember that the serpent's head has been crushed. The curse no longer haunts us. God has made good on his promise. Jesus has come. Emmanuel is with us, and he's with us right here, right now. So let's stand and worship him together.